Amen. And you may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Acts chapter 13. If you do not have your Bibles, we have plenty here, so just slip up your hand and I'll make sure that one of our men provides you with one. And we'll also project the uh, the scripture on the screen as well. Acts chapter 13, and we're just going to be reading the first four verses of this chapter. Word of God says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's pray. Father God, as I think of this church in Antioch, sending forth members to preach the gospel. Lord, I can't help but think of Harbin's. Father, I pray that Harbin's would be a church where its members would go out and preach the gospel. God, I pray that there would be members of this church that would be sharing Christ with their neighbors, unashamed, with boldness. Father, I pray that there would be members of this congregation sharing about the glory of Jesus Christ in their workplace. And if they lose their job, you'll honor them for preaching the gospel. Father, I pray for people in our congregation that you would send some to different parts of the globe where the name of Christ has not yet been named, hard places, even dangerous places, because you're worthy of, you're worthy of it. Father, I pray that you would use Harbin's church as a means to spread your name and your fame worldwide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's really good to be back in the book of Acts now. Um, Honestly, this week as I was preparing and getting back into the book of Acts, I was rereading the first 13 chapters of Acts, just trying to get my heart in the right place for for this message. It kind of felt like, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but it kind of felt like, you know, coming home. I don't know if you've ever been on vacation for a while and you've gone for a couple of weeks and then there's just that feeling that when you come back home, all right, it feels good to be back. And it's been great this summer to take a break and, and uh, to do our um, summer Sabbath, taking a break from some of our, our, our rewind and, and, and the kids elements, the, the Explore the Bible um, program. And we, we've taken a break from these things. And then also we went into the, had our summer Psalm series and then our series through Ruth, and they've been very good. I've, I've enjoyed the Psalms and enjoyed Ruth, but I'm excited to get back into Acts. And we actually began this series almost exactly a year ago. So we're halfway through the book of Acts, basically, in a year. So uh, hopefully by this time next year, we'll see, Lord willing, we, we may be through the book of Acts, but we're just going to take our time and go through it verse by verse. But we are picking up now in really what is the second half of the book. Um, God is sovereign, and, 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 and we didn't we didn't intend it this way, but really, when we, the, where we ended, where we ended right before the summer began, it was just God's timing because it, it's the transition point of the book of Acts. With chapter 13, a new phase of the book of Acts begins. 
Now, our series title has been He Reigns, uh, with the subtitle of The Sovereignty of God and the Gospel in the Book of Acts. We've looked from the very beginning at how God is the one who reigns. He has given us his gospel message, the gospel accomplishment of what Christ did on the cross, and he reigns in the spread of that good news. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, we read the basically what is the uh, Luke's version of the Great Commission when Jesus says to his disciples right before he ascends, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. God is sovereign. He says, you will be my witnesses. And sends them out. And then at the very end of the book of Acts, in, in verse 28 of chapter 28, Paul's speaking and he says, Let it be known to you that this salvation of God, the gospel, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. God has a good news message and all whom he wants to receive that message will receive that message. He's sending it out. He's sovereign. He reigns. The gospel is unstoppable. We're actually living... In Acts 29, I love that. That's the name of a church planting network. I love that name, Acts 29. There's not 29 chapters in Acts. There's only 28. That's because we're in Acts 29. Because we are still part of the ongoing story of the spread of the unstoppable gospel message of Jesus Christ. And it's a privilege to be part of what God continues to do before the return of Christ and where it's all brought to its final conclusion. He is sovereign and his gospel is unstoppable. It will accomplish its purpose. So before we get into Acts 13 today, I want us just to take a little bit of a, of a, um, uh, a journey back through where we've been in Acts to kind of jog our memories and remind us of what all has happened up to this point. Now, if you're not familiar with Acts, um, you need to know that Acts really is a sequel. It's a sequel to the gospel of Luke, written by the physician by the name of Luke. He wrote down what he intended to be a very accurate historical record of the works of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and then the continuing work of Christ through his apostles and disciples in Acts. And so we have a historical record by a, a physician by the name of Luke. Really, Acts is just the continuation of Luke. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 1 says, All that Jesus began to do, that's what Luke was about, and now we know that this book here is what he continues to do. So Jesus gives his disciples, he meets with his disciples, he gives them this commission that I just told you a second ago, which really is the kind of the thesis for the whole book of Acts. Let me read it again because it's important. This is the theme of the whole book. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not only is that the theme of the book, it's the outline of the book as well. And we're seeing that outline progress in today's chapter, chapter 13. That the gospel is continuing to spread, and it's spreading in the way that God intended it to spread. For starting in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. So the, the disciples, they, they obey Jesus. He tells them to remain in Jerusalem until they've received the power of the Holy Spirit and and we know that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. They were praying in one accord. There's about 120 of them. They had also already uh, elected a new uh, apostle to replace Judas. But they're there at Pentecost. The Spirit descends upon them in a new way, in a new type of infilling that had never happened prior to Pentecost. And, and, and in this instance, the Holy Spirit gives them the power to speak in other languages. So there's, there's Jews who had come to Jerusalem from all over the Greek-speaking world, and they had come to, to worship God during Pentecost. 
and they're hearing the apostles preach in a bunch of different languages, and it amazes the crowd because they see these apostles up there preaching in different languages. And some of the people are amazed. Other people call them drunk. And Peter sees the commotion out there, and he seizes the opportunity, and he preaches the first sermon that we have of the church era. Now, we also see a pattern here. We see a miraculous event where the Spirit descends upon them. They're speaking in miraculous languages. And then Peter preaches. That's a pattern in the book of Acts. Miracles are followed by the preaching of the Word. And you remember I said, if you were here back then, there's always a wonder followed by the Word. Wonder and Word. Wonder and Word. And it's all throughout the book of Acts. And really, miracles are meant as confirmation of the Word of God in the book of Acts. They confirm the message that the Gospels is bringing. We don't need miraculous confirmation anymore because we, have, we hold a miraculous confirmation in our hand. This book is a miraculous book. And it is the confirmation. It is the apostles' teachings. And so we have it with us all the time now. So Peter preaches. Okay, he says in, he preaches basically from Joel chapter 2. Uh, he does some expository preaching. And he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he points to the name of the Lord being Jesus. And he tells the people that God, it was indeed God's plan for Jesus to be crucified. Yet those who were responsible were those people out there, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Romans. They were responsible for Jesus' death, but it was God's plan all along for Jesus to be crucified and to rise again. And he tells the people to repent, to be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And on the, after the very first sermon of the church age, 3,000 people accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and are baptized. So we see tremendous power as the Holy Spirit begins the church age. And we have a couple of really cool descriptions in the very beginning part of Acts of what the church was like. And one of those is in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And we see in that little passage of Scripture there that there was apostolic teaching. There was teaching of the apostles, which was important to the church. So any church thereafter must have apostolic teaching, which means the teaching from the Scriptures. And so that's important if you're really going to be a church. And we also see in that same passage they had fellowship. They fellowshiped together. A good church, a strong church, has strong fellowship. It also says they broke bread, which was probably referring to the Lord's Supper. There is an observance of Jesus' ordinances, which were baptism and communion. And also they prayed. They were people who prayed together. And the other thing we see in the early church is they were tremendously generous. They would sell anything they had, their own property, their own possessions, in order to meet the needs of those in the church. We also see that they were meeting in two different places. Sometimes they would meet in home to home. That's what the scripture says. They would meet from home to home, but also in the temple, which sets a pattern for us that there is the church should be meeting with small groups, and we do that in the homes during the weeks, and should also be gathering together as a large group to worship the Lord. So we see this pattern of what church life is like happening in the book of Acts. A little bit later, Peter and John are walking into the temple. There's a beggar there who's lame, and Peter uh, heals this beggar. And if you, you can, the symbolism there is, is this is the new covenant now because a beggar would not have been allow, allowed into the temple because he wasn't whole. And, and so Jesus, I mean, P Jesus through Peter heals this, this poor lame beggar. He's now whole, and he walks into the temple because the curtain has been ripped in two. There's no longer anything standing between us and God because we are whole if we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we're not talking about physical wholeness. We're talking about spiritual wholeness. We've been made right with God, and therefore we can be in his presence. So this, pe this beggar is healed. 
Uh, he starts dancing around in the temple. It catches people's attention. Peter, he's a good preacher. Once he's got people's attention, he's got to preach. So he preaches, and 2,000 more people are saved. That's two sermons, 5,000 people. That's pretty good. So the church has begun in a spectacular, powerful way here in Acts. By this time, the authorities are getting a little bit annoyed. Matter of fact, the scripture says they were greatly annoyed. So they begin to threaten Peter and the apostles. That's the first step. The next step is they arrest them again the second time. This time they beat them. And this is how persecution goes. It starts with just threats. It progresses to physical intimidation, which is what happened the second time. And the third time that someone is arrested in the book of Acts is when Stephen is arrested and he's martyred. And so we see a progression of, of increased resistance to the gospel. So the gospel's flourishing and resistance is increasing. Satan and his kingdom is working against the gospel, but God's gospel is unstoppable because God uses the persecution of Stephen, which turns into a persecution of the whole church, mainly against the Hellenistic Jews, but a persecution against the church. He uses that for his ends, and he has the gospel actually spreading even farther. And we see at that point, the gospel goes outside of the walls of Jerusalem. It begins to go to Samaria. And in Samaria, we have kind of a second Pentecost, the Samaritans receive the gospel message. Jesus, I mean, Peter comes, lays his hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit as a confirmation that, yes, now the gospel has gone outside of Jerusalem. Now it has also gone into other parts of Judea and even Samaria. And so we read about this amazing continuing spread of the gospel here in the first few books of the book of Acts. Now in chapter 4, verse 36 we're introduced to a very important new character, a guy by the name of Barnabas. It says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're introduced to this guy, and we all, all, the only thing Scripture gives us about Barnabas is very, very positive pictures. And the reason I bring that up is because he plays an important part in today's passage as well. But to draw a contrast to how, how um, godly Barnabas was, the very next passage is a, about a guy by the name of Ananias and a lady named Sapphira who tried to trick the church into thinking that they were bringing money from land they had sold when in reality they were keeping part of the money. God didn't demand that they give the money. It was, they were supposed to do it of their own free will, but they were trying to trick people. They were trying to look more righteous than they really were. They were, they were, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. They were lying to God's church. And God strikes them both dead. And fear now spreads not only in the church, but outside the church. And people realize what an awesome God this is we serve. That he's not playing around when he talks about church. He's not playing around when he's talking about his, com his community of covenant people. Being people who are sacrificial. Being people who are honest. Being people who love him with all their heart. Not just part of their heart. Even more believers though are added to the Lord. This, makes, this just blows me away. Okay. Someone just died in the church. Okay, so let's say here at Harbin's, news gets out in the community that someone dropped dead at the front of the church on a Sunday. Not only that, the wife then walked in and dropped dead as well. Okay, but in Jerusalem what happened was more people joined the church because they realized, I want a real God like that to serve. And so the, the gospel continues to spread, and it continues to spread, and people are added to the church. By this point, there's probably 12,000 people in the church in Jerusalem. It has grown so fast, so quickly. But 
Still there's resistance. Again, the apostles are arrested. They're flogged, but they're miraculously freed. Persecution continues to break out. I already mentioned the persecution against Stephen. And the guy leading this persecution was a guy by the name of Saul. A, a, a um, zealous young Pharisee by the name of Saul. He leads the persecution against Stephen. He then, he then takes the lead. I think her arm's stuck. Poor girl. Those doors are heavy. That hurt. All right. Um, the persecution continues, and it's being led by a guy by the name of Saul. He's leading the charge. He's arresting Christians. He's putting them in jail. He's having some of them put to death. So in Acts chapter 9, we have a dramatic conversion experience of Saul. And the stage is set. After Saul is converted, he sees the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, on the road to carry out Satan's plans. Jesus steps in the way and, and blinds him. He's saved miraculously. His, he's then healed by, God, by a guy, a different Ananias, heals him and tells him what his mission is. And Jesus also reveals his mission, which is to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And a, and a shift begins to happen in the book of Acts. It's the first stage of this shift that we're seeing the gospel now spreading to the Gentiles as well. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, Cornelius is saved. And he's a Gentile um, uh, uh, Roman centurion, and he's saved. Peter is given a revelation from God that he should not, uh, he should not uh, uh, keep from taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the, the, he, he, after this vision, he, he goes and he, and he um, sees Cornelius and his family come to the Lord, and he sees the Holy Spirit come upon them. And this is kind of the third Pentecost. We've had Pentecost in Jerusalem, Pentecost in Samaria, and now a third sort of Pentecost— with the household of Cornelius, and the gospel continues to be confirmed and spread in miraculous ways. Now, while Peter is being supernaturally led to a guy by the name of Cornelius, we read in Acts chapter 11, there were some other unnamed Christians in Antioch who decided to preach gospel to the Gentiles as well. And a church began in Antioch. And we'll look a little bit more at this church in a few minutes. But this church sends for a guy by the name of Barnabas, they, they, or actually Jerusalem sends Barnabas to check out the situation. Barnabas encourages them. He goes and gets Saul to help him minister to the people in Antioch. And then we have a little parenthesis where it goes back to the story of Peter and the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12. And this is the story where James, the brother of Jesus, I mean the brother of John, is imprisoned. And, and then he's beheaded. He's killed. And so Herod decides, you know what? I'm going to do the same thing to Peter. The Jews here seem to enjoy that, so I'm going to do the same thing to Peter. Peter's put in jail, but he, he miraculously escapes. And there's this tremendous, mysterious sovereignty of God. James is killed, yet Peter escapes. We can't explain it sometimes, but sometimes God might deliver us from difficulties, and sometimes God might allow difficulty to come upon us for his purposes. And the church in Jerusalem is unfazed. They pray for Peter. He's released by a miraculous event. Okay, and, and he goes back to the church, they pray, and we see that Herod, though, Herod, in his pride and his arrogance, kind of sets himself up as a deity as people begin to worship him, and we see this little interesting story where God strikes Herod dead. And so, God reigns, God rules, he's the one who ha holds life in his hand, and we see the gospel continuing to spread, and so here we are 
in Acts chapter 13. And as I said earlier, this is a major transition point in the book of Acts. It's a shift from a focus on the apostle Peter to a focus on the apostle Paul. From this point forward, almost all the focus is going to be on Paul. Very little of the focus is going to be on Peter. It's also a shift from the gospel being centered in Jerusalem to Antioch now becoming the new center of gospel explosion and gospel growth. It's also a transition from the church being a majority of Jewish believers to now the church becoming a majority of Gentile believers. And that's the shift we begin to see here. So basically the shift now, if you want to write in the margin of your Bible, Acts chapter 13, this is the beginning of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. This is the beginning of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. This is the beginning of a missionary endeavor that will turn the world upside down. What happens here in these first four chapters, first four verses of Acts chapter 13 are the first steps of global evangelization. What is put into motion here in these first four verses of Acts chapter 13 is a carrying out of Christ's great commission that is still being carried out today. And it started with this church in Antioch. I've entitled today's uh, message, A Church God Uses to Change the World. A Church God Uses to Change the World. Our little vision statement that's up here on the screen sometimes, and sometimes we'll say it from down here, is that we want to be a church where the generations converge, all ages converge, to enjoy God, because to really worship God is to enjoy Him, to enjoy God, and then go change the world. So here in this book of Acts, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13, we have a church that God uses to change the world. Now let's talk a little bit about Antioch. Antioch was a city, I've mentioned this before when we talked about Antioch earlier in one of the previous sermons, but I need to mention it again. It's a religious and cultural melting pot. It's not much different than the United States today. It had a lot of different religions represented, a lot of different cultures represented. It was really a melting pot. It was a very important city in the Roman Empire. It was the third most important city after Rome and Alexandria. It was known to be a beautiful city with beautiful architecture. It also was set in a beautiful part of the world. The the natural setting was beautiful as well. There was a temple only five miles away. It was a temple of Diane. And there was cult prostitution, which was rampant in the city. Therefore, its beauty was only matched by its immorality. There was lots of immorality in the city of Antioch. Even the Romans considered it a morally decadent and filthy city. Today, it can be found, the city of Antioch is in southern Turkey, if you, if you want to know kind of where it would be today. Now, what is it? Amazing about this church in Antioch is that God used this church in the middle of this area of moral decay to be a church that changed the world. So the question I want us to ask today in in our notes is simply this. Well, go back for me two spots there. What type of church does God use to change the world? What type of church does God use to change the world? I want us to look at this church as a pattern. Okay, if, if, if one of you guys came to me and said, Steve, I'd really like for you to um, sew a dress for me. I need a dress for my daughter. Would you do that? Okay, first of all, I would, 
asked to take your temperature. Are you okay? Do you know me? Or, you know, what's, what's wrong? But if you were to come and do that, I would have no clue how to do that. I would have absolutely no clue. Kids, if you wanted me to, to, to sew something for you, I wouldn't know what to do. Heather has this nice sewing machine, you know, and it's got, it's all computerized. I can't, I don't want to touch it. I'm afraid, you know, I'll try to sew and, and my hand will get sewn up or something, you know. So I wouldn't even know what to do. And even if I knew how to use the, the machine, I, I mean, I would just have to kind of come up with something out of my mind. And, I, and it would it'd be horrible. It really would. And believe me, I took home ec just once and we had to make pillows. And, and my pillow was not the shape it was supposed to be. It was like this, it looked like a cloud, you know, it was messed up. You don't want me sewing. So if I were to do something, though, I would need a pattern, right? So, so I've got a, just a sewing pattern here. So you would want something with a pattern that, that tells you. Um, I just grabbed a part of the pattern here. You know, it tells you where, where to cut, what to cut, and, and how to sew it together and, and, and what you need to use. So if, if we're going to be a church that changes the world, we want to be a church that, that, that has a pattern to follow. We want to look at this book. And see, what pattern is God giving us in, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13 of Acts? Because this is where the changing of the world begins. It just begins to explode from this point forward. Now, maybe even if I had a pattern, th- there may be some things, if, if you may have the same pattern I have, and you may use a different material than I use, that, that's okay. Th- there's, there's a lot of things that this passage doesn't get specific about. And you're left kind of frustrated. God, wait a second here. And for example... God doesn't tell uh, Paul and Barnabas in this passage, Saul in this passage, doesn't tell them where to go. And you're thinking, okay, wait a second, how do they know where to go? They just kind of go out. And so we don't know, do they know where to go or do they not know where to go? Or they end up going to Cyprus, which was, which was Barnabas' hometown, so maybe that was their strategy. I don't know. It doesn't tell us a lot of things, but it gives us some basic things. It gives us a pattern. And we cannot be a church that changes the world if we don't follow this pattern. So let's talk about that some this morning. If we want to be a church, the type of church that changes the world, we've got to follow this pattern. Before we get to your first question in the notes, which I know is already, the answer is already there for you, let's read a little bit about this church in Antioch. Let's back up to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Let's see how this church got started. Okay, it says, now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember, God used the persecution for his purposes. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them. These are those unnamed disciples. Peter was getting a supernatural revelation to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, there were some unnamed disciples here that were willing to be brave enough to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. God's hand has to be with any church that's going to change the world, okay? Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. They sent him to Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the word with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. If you wanted to send someone to a new church to encourage them, it was Barnabas. He had two gifts that we see here in this passage. Number one, he could see the grace of God at work. That is a gift. 
You see, a lot of us see the problems in the church. A lot of us see the things we don't like. It's very, very—you don't have to be gifted at complaining. That is not a spiritual gift. That comes naturally. And a lot of us see the things we don't like, and it's easy to point those things out. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be pointed out from time to time. There is a time and a place to bring concerns. But, but Barnabas was this unique type of person that no matter what the issue was, he could see the grace of God at work. And that's the challenge I give anybody. If you've got a challenge or a concern or a complaint that you want to bring or that you see in the church, that's great. That's fine. But also be looking for how God's at work. That'll help you deal with the complaint in the right way. Look at what God is doing. And that's what Barnabas could do. He sees the grace of God at work, and he's an encourager. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. Okay, he sees all these people that have come to the faith. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught. And a great many people. I mean, taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the very first church that was ever called Christians. Verse 27, now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So this church was a church that also had a heart for others. They hear about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and they give generously and sacrificially. So this is the type of church that we see in Antioch. This is a great church. But let's look specifically at this passage this morning. What do we see regarding being an outward-focused, evangelistic, missional, world-changing church? What do we see in this text that talks to us about being a church that just changes the world? Because all the things they're doing in this passage I just read should be expected in every church. But the things we read here in this passage is what makes them a missional, mission-focused, outward-focused church. And let me just say this. Before we can be outwardly driven, okay, a church must be inwardly strong. Before a church can be outwardly driven, it must be inwardly strong. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So the first point I want us to see under this point is this. A church that is inwardly strong is a church that takes teaching seriously. A church that is inwardly strong is a church that takes teaching seriously. You remember that Barnabas, after he saw the grace of God at work, he went and got Saul because he knew that teaching was important. He wanted another guy with him to help teach this church. It says, now in the church there were prophets and teachers. These two terms are linked together here in the text. Okay, it's not that some of these men were prophets and some of them were teachers. This, this means that they were word-focused. They were prophet teachers. They used gifts like proclamation and ex- explanation of the word. They were prophet teachers. Teaching and proclaiming of God's word was very important to the church in Antioch. Any church, any church that wants to do great works for God in this world but neglects to teach the Word of God, is getting the cart before the horse. The prophetic preaching and teaching of God's Word is central to any church that might have any drive to reach any people with the gospel locally or globally. The teaching of God's Word, the consistent prophetic proclamation of God's Word in the church, 
is essential if we want to be a church that has any type of focus to reach people here in this community or beyond. It won't happen without solid biblical preaching. Today we often seem to get it backwards. Okay? We, we compromise teaching in order to be more attractive or missional. The word missional is the most overused word in the church today, and most pastors or pe- church people I run into can't even define it. Okay, and so simply means being mission-focused and, and not just thinking about missions and, and get, raising missions offerings, but actually going on mission and doing things, reaching people for Christ. And so it's a term that's thrown around there a lot today. But sometimes people think, well, you know what? In order to be a church that's reaching out to people, we've got to make this a whole lot more attractive than it is. And the tendency, our flesh, is to say, well, the preaching of the Word, a 45-minute long or hour-long sermon isn't attractive to the world. It's not attractive. So let's, let's, let's part down a little bit, and let's just don't go verse by verse. Let's touch on some topics. You know what? People like to talk about money. Let's talk about money. People talk, like to talk about sex lives. Let's talk about that. Let's come up with a list of topics and just do topics. And that's the, that's the mentality that drives the church in America today. And I don't think that makes us effective to reach the world. I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place for topical messages. We've done messages on stewardship. We've done messages on using your spiritual gifts. There is a time and a place for topical messages, but primarily we are just to simply be preaching the Word of God, and even our topical messages need to be what I call expositopical. They need to be from the Word of God. And so the Word of God has to be central. Paul urges Timothy, and he urges Titus to teach doctrine. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2.1. 1 Timothy 4.11. Command and teach these things. He was speaking to Timothy. Ephesians 2.19 and following says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking of the church, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on, built on what? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation, what is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets is the word of God. What we have here is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles' teaching is for us right here. What is New Testament prophecy? Well, we can have a discussion about that. Okay, I do believe there is New Testament instances. We just read one about a guy by the name of Agabus where prophecy was foretelling the future. But primarily the word prophecy, I believe, is used in the New Testament in the sense of foretelling, speaking a prophetic word of God, maybe speaking a prophetic word into someone's life from the Scriptures. If prophecy is separated from the Scriptures, it has no power. And so there's prophetic preaching. Now, is there still a place for foretelling in the church today? I'm not a one who believes all the spiritual gifts are dead. So I believe that God can absolutely do that. But I don't believe it's infallible. There's only one infallible Word of God that's right here. Any prophecy that comes from the mouth of a man, whether it's foretelling or whether it's foretelling the future, needs to be weighed against this because this is the infallible message of God. Anything that comes out of the mouth of a man is fallible. And it must be weighed against this. So if you think prophecy is dead or you think you've got a word 
of, for the future, whatever, whatever side you fall on, on, on prophecy in the New Testament, let's just remember this. There's only one infallible message. It's God's Word, the Bible. That's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We cannot have a heart for the lost apart from having our hearts and our heads in the Word. We cannot have a heart for the lost without having our hearts and our heads because Christians are to be thinking people. Our hearts and our heads in the Word of God. Likewise, if our hearts and our heads are not in the Word, we are not going to have a heart for the lost. It's that simple. So a church that takes teaching seriously, okay, will be a church that's, that's inwardly strong. And a church that takes teaching seriously will take leadership seriously. The second point I want to make under this first point is this. A church that is inwardly strong is a church that has godly leadership in place. It has godly leadership in place. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five men. They're probably elders of the church. Okay, they may have been elders before the term elder was even used. But they're obviously preachers and teachers of the word. That is the role of the elders in the church. So there's these five men. Okay, Barnabas was a Levite. We read about him earlier. He's a Levite, a Hellenistic Jew. Okay, Simeon was probably from Africa. He was probably an Africa, African man, a black man. Um, and he may, be, his, he may be tied closely to this next guy, who, and his name was Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was in, was in North Africa. Now if Simeon, maybe Cyrene is, is, uh, has a different color skin, and he's from North Africa, and, and they're setting apart um, 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 Simeon here, and they're, they're trying to point out him, and because his name, they called him Niger, which meant black. And they were maybe differentiating between him and the other guy from Cyrene. If this is Simeon from Cyrene, do you know who this man is? Now, we're just making a guess here, but if this is Simeon of Cyrene, the Scriptures tell us that when Jesus was on his way to Calvary, they grabbed a man by the name of Simeon of Cyrene to help carry the cross. And if he is, he is the man who's also called Niger, then he was a black man who helped Jesus carry the cross to Calvary. Think about that. This is a diverse group. The diversity of this leadership rep represents the diversity of the gospel that we're supposed to be sending it out to all the world. This is a diverse group of men. Lucius, his is kind of a Latin name. And then there's this guy named Menean uh, of the member of, the Herod, of Herod's co court or household. The word centrophos for, for court here literally means household. It means that he was probably brought up in Herod's house. The word is oftentimes used as a foster brother. So this guy has some influence. He's been brought up in Herod's house. He's royalty. What a diverse group of leadership. Socially diverse, economically diverse, racially diverse. What a lineup. Well, I mean, think about it. Usually when you give a list of leaders, you put the most important ones first. Barnabas is listed first. I do think he's the leader of this missionary expedition as they head out, I think, in the next uh, sermon, you'll see that it flips. But right now, Barnabas is the leader. And who's mentioned last? Saul. What kind of leadership group is that? You're in a church where Saul's listed last? My goodness. That's a serious group of leaders right there. What a diverse group. And look at the multiplicity of the elders, which is so, so very important. Remember just a year before, there was no leadership. They, Bar Barnabas gets there, he sees the grace of God at work, and he goes and gets Saul. Why does he have to go get a leader? Because there's no leaders there. He goes and gets Saul, and they begin to teach. 
What do we see in one year? We see five men emerging as leaders in the church. Missional churches have men stepping forward and saying, I want to help lead this church. I want to help lead the church. I feel God has placed on me a call to teach. If you feel called to teach, do not sit on your hands. You teach in the church. You make it known that God has placed a fire in my bones. And I'm called to teach. I'm called to preach. This is not a church where we set one man up here and say no one else gets the pulpit. If God has called you to preach, I will talk with you. We will talk about doctrine. And I will let you preach. Preach the word. Because we want to be a church where there's men stepping forth as leaders in the church. And that's what this church is here. It's a church where there's leadership emerging. So we see inward strength here in Antioch because they have a focus on teaching, because they have strong leadership in place. Notice another thing. A church that is inwardly strong is a church that practices spiritual disciplines. What does Luke say that they were doing in the church before the Spirit led them to this global evangelization strategy? Verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They were worshiping and fasting. And if you know your Bible, fasting is always accompanied with prayer. So they're worshiping, they're fasting, they're praying. They were people who believed in the spiritual disciplines and carrying them out. The word worshiping here literally in the Greek means liturgy. Liturgia is the word. We associate the word liturgy with worship today, and rightly so. But the origin of the word is this, to discharge one's public office. It was used of politicians. A politician, if he, was doing, if he was carrying out a liturgy, he was carrying out the role of his office. He was doing what he was supposed to be doing. It was also used of priests who were carrying out or fulfilling their priestly duty. And so for the leaders in the church, what was their duty in the church? If you go back to Acts chapter 6, what is the duty of the, those who have been called to pray, and, I mean, to be called to lead the church in the Word? Their duty was not to wait tables. Their duty was to be praying and reading the Word. And that's what these men were doing. They were carrying out their duty. They were being spiritual leaders in the church. They were preaching the Word of God, teaching the Word of God. But also the other members of the church, what was their duty? How were they to carry out their duty? Well, they were to be holy priests, be a holy priesthood. How do we carry out the role of a priest as a believer? Well, according to the Scripture, according to 1 Peter 2.5, we are a holy priesthood. And so we are supposed to be offering sacrifices all the time. What type of sacrifices? Not animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. What sacrifices are we called to offer in the New Testament? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? As a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The way we worship rightly. This was a church that worshiped well. And if you, a church that worships well is a church that gives itself over as living sacrifices. That's a, a church that's ready to be missionally, globally focused. Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice, this is our priestly duty, of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So a church that's inwardly strong not only has leaders carrying out their 
priestly duty to prepare and to deliver the messages of God. It has people who are living sacrificial lives out there doing good, out there giving of themselves, out there being living sacrifices, saying, God, there's no part of me, my children, my money, nothing. There's no part of me that doesn't belong to you. I'm a living sacrifice. Do whatever you want with me. God will not move in a church that does not have people like that in it. It's that simple. God moves in churches where there's, it's filled with people who say, whatever you want, God. That's how you have people go to Africa, sell everything they have, take their children with them to, to mosquito, malaria-infested parts of the world and do it with a big smile on their face because they've been living a lifestyle of living sacrifice. And they say, sure, God, you want me to leave the American dream behind? It's gone. I'll go wherever you want me to go. That's a church that is inwardly strong. This was the climate of the church in Antioch. Spiritual leaders doing what God had called them to do. Members doing what God had called them to do. And it takes spiritual discipline. They were fasting. They were hungering after God by making themselves hungry. Christians are not commanded to fast in the scripture. Let me say that again. Christians are not commanded to fast in the scripture. Jesus never said fast. But Jesus expected Christians to fast. Fasting is the most neglected spiritual discipline in the church today. I think part of it is simply the culture we live in. We live in a culture where we like to eat. We like to eat. We like to be satisfied. And to go without doesn't make sense in our world today. But Jesus says there are times he expects his believers to fast. He said when he left, they would be fasting. When he leaves, my my people will be fasting. And so fasting is expected by Christ, and it was happening in this church, and it was part of the reason they could sense and seek God the way they did. So, let me get to my second point. Before a church can be inwardly driven, it must be, I mean outwardly driven, it must be inwardly strong. But the second thing I want to see, okay, and only when a church is inwardly strong will it be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Inward strength comes first, and then the Spirit makes His desires known. Outward passion for the lost must be preceded by these things. If a person or a church says they have a passion for the lost but neglects teaching, neglects biblical leadership, neglects to have spiritual disciplines, have a hard time embracing that church's vision for ministry or for reaching the world. If someone embarks upon an impressively planned out, impressively strategized mission, but hasn't spent time in the Word, hasn't been under biblical leadership and submitted to authority of leadership in their life and hasn't been fasting and praying about whether or not God wants them to do it, then I have a hard time knowing. I don't know. That's a great strategy you have for missions, but it doesn't mean anything until I know that the Spirit has led you to do that through spiritual disciplines, through biblical leadership, and through the Word of God. Does your passion for the lost flow out of the Bible's teaching the, the biblical teaching you're undergoing corporately, privately, or with others? Does it flow out of godly submission to leadership in your life? Does it flow out of a continual seeking of God through the spiritual disciplines so that you can abide with Christ? In verse 2 it says, The Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Okay, the Spirit called. This wasn't Saul's idea. This wasn't Barnabas' idea or any of the church leaders' idea. This was the Spirit's idea. You set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. 
Now, I've said this before probably. I always, always kind of remind you guys, I can't remember what I did last week, much less the week before. So when I use illustrations more than once, that's just, you're going to have to live with it. But uh, when I was at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas, fresh off the mission field, my parents were missionaries in Ecuador. So I was very interested in missions. So I was very interested whenever anybody would come up to me and say, hey, I'm going to be a missionary. I always felt that there was always a kindred feeling between missionary kids and missionary aunts and uncles. We call them aunts and uncles. I'd meet a missionary kid from Uganda, and we had an immediate bond. And it's just the way it was. You can't explain it. I can't, unless you're a missionary kid in here. Is anybody in here, MK? Let me just ask real quick. A missionary kid? So not a single one of you can understand what I'm talking about. But there's a special bond between missionary kids and missionaries. And we call all missionaries, whether or not the first time we meet them, if you find out they're missionary, they're your aunt and your uncle. It's just, that's just the way it is. So Heather and I have tons of aunts and uncles. She grew up in the mission field, so did I. So I come back to the States. I'm at Hardin-Simmons University. I meet people, young guys, enthusiastic about the Lord, much like Mark over here, all right, college age. And, and they say, I'm going to be a missionary. And I, was, I wanted to know why. I said, great, that's, that's great. Because what I wanted to know was, tell me about it. How did God call you into missions? Were you, were you, were you in private devotion and you just felt this calling? Or would you hear a specific sermon? What, what is it? And I always was, was grieved when they would say, no, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just, that's my major. What do you mean that's your major? Yeah, I'm majoring in missions. I'm going to be a missionary. Or I'm majoring in, in religion. I'm going to be a preacher. That's just my major. You know what? Gospel preaching and gospel missions is not the product of us deciding, yeah, you know what? That sounds good. I think I'll do that. It's got to be the Holy Spirit leading. Holy Spirit pushing you out. This wasn't Saul's idea. This wasn't Barnabas' idea. Saul had been in Tarsus possibly up to five years at this point. And now all of a sudden the Spirit's leading him out. So this was the Holy Spirit moving. How did the Holy Spirit speak? We don't know. It's not important. He just did. Maybe he spoke through a prophetic utterance through one of the other men. We don't know. But it says here to set them apart. Consecrate them. God chooses specific people for specific tasks. He doesn't just call everybody to the same thing. This is so important. Because I think we tend to look at things people are doing in the church. Oh, this family over here is adopting. Oh, well, this family over here is doing this. And we kind of feel, honestly, envious. And we begin to think, maybe we should adopt too. Or maybe we should do this as well. And we, there's these trends that happen in the church. Now, I think there's moves of God where, where God puts adoption onto the heart of a church. And they, they go forth and God calls lots of people out of the church to adopt. I hope that happens in our church. That's that'd be great. But but I don't want people just, oh yeah, that, that sounds cool. I got an extra thirty grand sitting around. I'm going to adopt. You know, you know, they're just going to, or or whatever, whatever it is, homeschooling, adopting, whatever. We don't make decisions based upon whatever the trend is in the church because God does not call everybody to the same task. What He calls you to, He may not call me to, and what He calls me to, He may not call you to. And that's okay. I mean, the Bible says in, in um, Romans 12, 3, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each, listen to this, according to the measure of faith, that means an amount of faith, that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in, in our serving. 
The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul and Barnabas were chosen. Saul and Barnabas for this task. Lucius wasn't chosen. Simeon of Cyrene, he wasn't chosen. We don't know what these other guys did with their lives. What God did with them. But they were not chosen for the task. But these men, Saul and Barnabas, were. They're chosen for the task that he had called them to. Whenever we do anything for God, it involves a call. Sometimes there may be a gap between the call and the fulfillment. Okay, sometimes there may be a gap between the call and the fulfillment. We've already, we, if you, in, in Acts, we've already seen, and, and if you know, if you're familiar with, with Paul's um, speeches that he gives about his conversion experience later in Acts, that Jesus had already told him, I want you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This is six years later now. There may be a gap between the call and the fulfillment. That's happened in my life. I, I felt called into ministry, really honestly, before I went to college. Now, I resisted that call some too, so that, that kind of explains some of the gap. But I didn't go into full-time ministry until almost a decade later, partially because of my own resistance, other things that God didn't allow to happen in the timing that I wanted it to happen. That's okay. Sometimes there'll be a gap between the call and the mission, but there always has to be the call. I want you to notice another thing. Okay, who did, who did God choose? He chose Barnabas and Saul. Okay, this is the church in Antioch. It's a fr- baby, baby church. He chooses the most encouraging guy in the church. And he chooses the greatest theologian in the history of the world. And takes these two guys from the church. What I want us to see in that, however God chooses to move, whoever he chooses to move away from a church, we just submit to him. I remember as a child, I was um, about Olivia's age when we went overseas, just a little bit younger. And I remember the day my dad stood in the pulpit of Coral Hill Baptist Church in Glasgow, Kentucky, with a congregation not much bigger than this. And he stood there and he announced, God has called Becky and I to the mission field. We're going to be leaving in the next few months for training. And I remember some people were weeping and crying and hugging and all. But there were some in the church that were angry. They were mad at my mom and dad for abandoning the church. And they were mad at God for calling them away. And that happens a lot of times. And no matter what the church is, no matter who God's brought in, you may, you may love the teaching of the church, you may love the music of the church, we've always got to be a church that's willing to let go of whoever God wants to take away from us to do whatever he wants to do. He took the greatest theologian in the history of the church away from Antioch for at least a two or three year long mission trip. And he takes the most encouraging guy. I mean, you think about that. This is the guy who's never saying anything negative. He's always seeing the good side of everything. He's the positive guy in the church. And he leaves. Talk about making a pastor depressed. God, don't take those people from the church. Leave those people here. I've got other people I want you to take. Go. Leave those people here. God can take whoever he wants, whomever he calls, to go do his work. And notice that their spiritual disciplines continued. It says, verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Fasting and prayer was needed to hear the call. Fasting and prayer was needed to heed the call. Sometimes we, we, we fast, we pray, we seek God, we, he, we get our answer, and we go about life. 
No, let's follow the pattern of the people in Antioch. You fast, you pray, you hear from God, and then you say, God, I cannot carry this out on my own, so I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray some more. They fasted and prayed so they could hear the call of God, and they fasted and they prayed so they could carry it out. To hear it and to heed it. This is so important. And it brings me to my last point this morning. Before the church can be outwardly driven, it must be inwardly strong. And only when the church is inwardly strong will it be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. And finally, a church that is sensitive to the Spirit's leading will be God's agent for change in the world. It says they, the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. And I simply want to bring this point as kind of the conclusion. The local church of God is God's tool for reaching the world. Parachurch ministries are great. What you do in your home is great. What you do with other believers at a coffee shop on a Sunday morning, or it's not Sunday morning, some other time is great. It's great. But God's instrument, God's agent for sending missionaries into the world is the local church of God. That's his agent. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't build his parachurch ministry. He didn't build a men's accountability group. He built a church. And it says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. They laid their hands on them. The church laid their hands on them and sent them out because they were giving a physical demonstration. They were asking the Holy Spirit's power to be on them, but also that they were with them as they went out. They were the sending agent. The local church is always the sending agent. The church is God's central piece in the evangelization of the world. We cannot forget that. And we live in a day and age And those of you who will be in my membership class a little bit later than I had planned, in a little bit, will hear me say that it gets under my skin big time when people say, I love Jesus, but I just hate the church. That is a ridiculous statement. Because if you love Jesus, you're going to love his church. It doesn't mean you love everything the church does. The church makes a lot of silly mistakes. Burning Korans is a stupid and silly mistake. Stupid. I'm not saying anything about the value of the crayon. I'm saying, duh. Don't be stupid. You can't reach the world. You're not called to go reach the world that way. You're called to go reach the world by loving them into the kingdom of Christ. Yes, you point out sin and you love them in the name of Christ and you give your life for them. So the church makes dumb mistakes. But you know what? It's still... It's still, if that church in wherever it was, Gainesville, Pensacola, if that church is a real church, and I don't know if it is or not, if it is a real church, meaning that it preaches the gospel message of Christ the way the scriptures say the gospel is to preach, if it is a real church, then it's still God's agent. And no matter how much it messes up, we are to be praying for the local church. We are to be doing missions through the local church. It is God's primary instrument. It trumps everything else, even the family. The church is God's primary instrument for reaching the world. So Barnabas and Saul, probably in that order, Barnabas was the leader here, they head out. They head out on what was dubbed Paul's first missionary journey. It was actually not Paul's journey, nor was it the church in Antioch's journey. They don't own the journey here. 
they may be God's agent for sending out, but I want you to notice what verse 4 says. It says, so being sent out by the church in Antioch? No. So being but sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Ultimately, it's God's work. So if we send out missionaries from Harbin's and they do great works, plant new churches, reach people for Christ locally and globally, guess what? We cannot, I would love to put a bulletin board out back. I plan on doing it someday. A bulletin board shows where we've done missions work. I can't wait till we can get that up. But you know what? We can't look at that and go, wow, look at what Harbin's is doing. Harbin's is simply the agent God is using for his spirit to do a work in the world. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. And my prayer is that God would do a work in Harbin's, a missionary work, a soul-saving work, a vision-generating work, a Christ-exalting, Christ-magnifying, Christ-proclaiming work in Harbin's. So I pray that we'll be inwardly strong, not inwardly focused. That's very different. Inwardly strong makes us outwardly focused. So I want us to be a church that teaches well, that puts good leadership in place, pray for us in that area, has a church that practices spiritual disciplines. What God might have in store for this little church here, I don't know. But our vision is to be a church where the generations converge to enjoy God and go out and change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be a church that changes the world. One life at a time, it may be, we change the world of one person living in the neighborhood right next to the church here. That might be your first step for us. Maybe we change the world of a family who was, had the most difficult time they've ever had in their life. And we were there for them. And we were able to share the gospel with them. And their world turned upside down. It was changed. Maybe we change the world by sending out a, 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 someone here to, to plant a new church, to be a pastor somewhere. Maybe we change the world by God calling a missionary couple out, even today, to be missionaries in whatever part of the world you might send them to. God, this is your pattern for us to follow in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. This is the beginning of the gospel spread to the end of the earth, and we're part of that continuing process. So God, we want to follow the pattern well. There may be some things we do different than other churches. That's okay. That's just the material. We want to follow the pattern well. So God, we ask now that you would do an inward work in us. Help us to be spiritually strong. God, give us godly leadership in this church. Give us godly leadership in the homes and in our, our workplaces, in this community. And God, help us to be a church that is spiritually disciplined. Don't let us neglect prayer, Lord. Please give us the grace to fast because I know I can't do it on my own. So God, we pray that you move in our midst. And as we sing one song to close, that you'd receive glory, that you receive all the praise. God, call us out. Call us out. Send us out. Send someone from this church to make a difference in the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand as we sing and we close with just a, just a song to the Lord. This is our time to respond. You can respond by bringing your prayer requests. Respond by bringing your offerings. Respond by just praying where you're at. If you want to come pray up here at the steps, you can as well. Whatever God might be leading you to do, respond to him this morning.